Good morning, it's good to be with you again. Begin with a question for you. How much, if someone were to ask you, how much do you know? How much knowledge do you have? How do you even answer a question like that? How do you measure knowledge or how much, how much do you know? They say all of the knowledge available to mankind has doubled in the last 10 years. Not sure what to think about that. I've talked with, I'm fascinated by knowledge, and I've talked to people that seem to know, be able to talk knowledgeably about any subject. Um, I think of one conversation I had, I was mostly a listener in this conversation, but the conversation went from logging to airplanes to farming to electricity to there were a lot of different topics in this conversation and this man was able to to knowledgeably talk about all of them. He had a pertinent comment or an observation about every one of those subjects. That is so fascinating to me. I've also been in conversations where I have exhausted my knowledge in about two sentences And after that, I just have questions. And that's kind of a deflating experience to be start out good in a conversation with somebody. And you appear like you are knowledgeable because you've got a few good comments. But then you quickly run out of of what you're talking about, of what you know. Every 60 seconds, it's said there are 2,000 typewritten pages added to man's knowledge. The material produced every 24 hours would take one person five years to read. There was a librarian of the Edinburgh University. He wanted every book older than 10 years put into storage and replaced, particularly textbooks. He said every textbook older than 10 years Get it out of here and get a new one. It needs to be replaced. Those books were written with the knowledge available at the time, but knowledge is increasing. We know more than we did. I think today we have more knowledge or more information than ever ever before throughout all of history. We have more information available to us and more knowledge than ever ever before. And not only do we know about more things, but this knowledge is readily available to us. You can learn about anything you want to. That wasn't always the case. But today, you can learn about anything you want to. Arnold Toynbee said since 1831, it has become impossible even for the most powerful intellect of the most industrious temperament to master more than a fraction of what there is to know. Since the 17th century, the amount of potential knowledge has increased far beyond the quantity that can become actual knowledge in any single human mind. Did you catch that? 
the potential knowledge has increased far beyond the quantity that can be actual knowledge in a single human mind. If a student is to acquire knowledge with sufficient thoroughness, he has to specialize. But the price of specialization is myopic or nearsighted and lacking imagination and possibly distorted view of the universe. So if you want to have a thorough knowledge on any one subject, you're going to have to specialize in that subject. There's so much to know. It's impossible to have a thorough knowledge of a lot of things. We might think we do, but our knowledge doesn't really scratch the surface. So how's your spiritual knowledge this morning? The Bible has a lot to say about knowing. If you do these things, happy are ye. If you know, if you, if you know them, happy are ye if you do them. How's your spiritual knowledge? John 17:3 says, "And this is the life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent." It's eternal life to know God. The title of the message this morning is Spiritual Knowledge. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This knowledge is not merely an intellect or something that we learn in our mind. Knowing God, and I want you to remember this definition as we go through here this morning, because this is what I'm going to be using as my basis for knowledge. The knowledge, our spiritual knowledge, is a living participation in the truth. That's what spiritual knowledge is. A living participation in the truth. I think many of you know the song, part of the song says this, for you know a lot about him, but do you know him? We know a lot about God. We know a lot about Jesus. We know a lot about his attributes and the life of Jesus and the character of Jesus. And that's important. It's good. It's fine and important. But how much do you know God? Do you see the difference between knowing a head knowledge and a living participation or an active participation in the truth? A spiritual knowledge. When we interpret knowledge, we see the importance of spiritual knowledge. It's the basis for eternal life. Spiritual knowledge is the basis for our eternal life. To actively participate in the truth. And what does that look like? What does it mean to actively or living participation in the truth? I came up with this. It's obedience. It's obedience to God. It's a relationship with God. That's a living participation in the truth. It's responding to the Holy Spirit's promptings. That's a living participation in the truth. The Holy Spirit, through conviction, or through a guiding us to a deeper understanding of a passage of Scripture, a deeper understanding of the character of God. That's a living, active participation in the truth. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4 says, Who will have all men to be saved? And to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the basis of our eternal life. To come to the knowledge of the truth. This knowledge is never exhausted. 
You can specialize in it all you want, but you will never exhaust the knowledge of the truth. We'll never know all that there is to know. We'll never understand everything that we do know. In Psalm 139, David lists some things that we know about God, some amazing things that we know about God, and then he goes on to say in verse 6, he says, we know it, but it's too, but we can't know it. And he's making the difference between a head knowledge and a heart knowledge, an understanding of it. He says, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hands upon me. Those are the things we know now. Somebody from school, from grades 2, 3, or 4, what's the next verse? It says, Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It says, we know all these things about God, but such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. So he's saying we can know about God, but we can't understand, we can't actively participate in that truth because we can't, we'll never be able to understand it. We know it, but we can't understand it. He separates and shows the difference here between the knowledge of God and a spiritual knowledge. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter emphasizes knowledge in this chapter. I've broken it into three sections. The first thing we want to look at is the gift of knowledge. That's how I've labeled it. It could also be labeled as the promise of knowledge. The gift of knowledge or the promise of knowledge. Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them who have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I'll stop reading there for now. Peter is writing to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. He's writing to anybody who has, who has share who shares this precious faith. So he's talking to us this morning. Those of us who share in this precious faith. The salvation is given through the righteousness of God and our savior Jesus Christ. Salvation is given through the righteousness of God. And I was trying to think of how can we break down this righteousness because that seems like a a phrase that covers a whole lot of other things. And to me, the righteousness is saying 
We have obtained this precious faith. It says through righteousness, but that means through mercy, through the mercy of God, through the love of God, through the compassion of God. That all falls under the righteousness of God. Of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I was reading within the last week or two the term or the word Christ has come to mean what it wasn't intended to mean. Christ means God's anointed one or it means king. It was meant to be a title given, but it's moved to being a proper name. And the one in the one book I was reading, some people actually believe that Christ was Jesus' last name. He was the son of Mary and Joseph Christ is what some people would believe because Jesus Christ goes together so well. But what it means is Jesus King. We have obtained this precious faith through the righteousness or the mercy and the love and the compassion of God of our Savior, Jesus Christ or Jesus the King. In verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Did you catch it? It says, Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Another title given to Jesus is Jesus our Lord. In other words, the knowledge of God is what gives us grace and peace. Saying grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God. Thinking this morning about knowledge. How is your knowledge of God? I think it's significant to look at these titles that Peter gives to Jesus in verse 1. The precious faith is given through our Savior Jesus Christ or the King. In verse 2, grace and peace comes through the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. Christ or King and Lord. Jesus gives us faith in the capacity of a King. Because there's two kingdoms. Satan is the, the prince of the power of the world. Jesus is the king of the king of kings, the king of the of the heavenly kingdom. So that king is giving us this faith, this precious faith. And Jesus multiplies that faith through grace and peace after we surrender to his lordship. It says through Jesus Christ our lord. Verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Again we have it. Through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. He's given us. I like that phrase. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Whatever, Everything a Christian needs is right there. He's given it all to you. Everything that pertains to life, to spiritual life, and to godliness. All things that are needed to prosper in our spiritual life, he's given to us. And it says, through the knowledge of, let's see, it doesn't give a name. It says, through the knowledge of him who has called you. Through the knowledge of God. So how is your knowledge of God? David Platt said this. He said, The Bible does not answer every question that we have. And then he pauses. And I thought, well, that's a discouraging thought. The Bible doesn't answer every question we have. Well, we've been taught all the answers are here. 
But he's right. The Bible doesn't answer every question you have, but it does answer every question that you need to live a successful Christian life and bring glory to God. In verse 3, he has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. It's what we need. He's given us what we need. Not answering every question that we have, but he does answer the questions that we need. We receive all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of the one who has called us to godliness. This Bible is an inexhaustible source of knowledge. And you think, no, it isn't. You could read this. It's probably possible to memorize this whole thing, to know every word in here. That's just a head knowledge, though. It's an inexhaustible source of heart knowledge when you actively participate in the truth and apply it to your life. You will never reach the depth of everything that is in here for your life. Never. In 2 Timothy 3, turn with me to 2 Timothy 3. Keep your finger here in 1 Peter because we'll come back. Let's go back to 2 Timothy 3. The first seven verses describe the characteristics of perilous last days. I'd like to look at verse 5, 6, and 7 as it pertains to the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 3, begin reading at verse 5, having a form of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead, lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away of divers lust, ever learning, but never, a, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5 and verse 7 are the ones I want to look at. Having a form of godliness, or what we today would call good people, good citizens, good people with good morals, but denying the power thereof. Now verse 7, ever learning, always learning, always, always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. you know what that means? It means they come to church every Sunday. They listen. They read good books. But they're never able to apply what they glean from that. They're never able to put it into practice and apply it to their life. Verse 5 says, from such turn away. The Amplified Version says that these people had a form of piety but reject and are strangers to the power of it. They are good, what we would say are good people with good morals, good practices, but they reject and are strangers to the power of it. Romans 10 talks about those that have the zeal of God but not according to knowledge. That's a lot to think about. Somebody that has the zeal of God but not according to the knowledge of God. They're not allowing that knowledge of God to penetrate their heart and work in their heart and change their heart. Now let's go back to 2 Peter, chapter 1. What Peter's saying here is that grace and peace 
In verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied through the knowledge of God. Verse 3, all things given pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of God. So what he's saying is grace and peace and all things that we need to live a godly life are given to us as we grow in the knowledge of God. That's the gist of what he's saying in these verses. Grace, peace, and everything that you need to live a victorious Christian life are given to you as you grow in the knowledge of God. Verse 4, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Because of this knowledge of God, again, remember the definition of knowledge is not just knowing about God. It's knowing who God is, knowing His character, His likes, His dislikes, and what what He would have us to do. Because of this knowledge of God, working in us, and the understanding of His promises, we are able to be partakers of a divine nature and to rise above the corruption of the world. That's the only way. To become a partaker of the divine nature and to rise above the corruption of the world is to have that knowledge of God in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds. So when we fall over and over and we constantly struggle to overcome something dragging us down, we can only conclude that there is a breakdown somewhere in our knowledge of God. As we stumble and fall time after time, if we've got a recurring sin or something we keep falling back to, There's a breakdown somewhere in our knowledge of God. If we are growing in the knowledge of God, it says clearly here, we will have grace and peace multiplied in our life. If we're growing in the knowledge of God, we will have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. If we are growing in the knowledge of God, we will be a partaker of the divine nature that enables us The knowledge of God is a gift of God. It's the knowledge of His character revealed as we seek Him. So I think it would be fair to say that the amount of knowledge that you have would correspond with your desire to seek Him. And the amount of spiritual knowledge that you have or the knowledge of God would coincide with how much grace and peace is in your life and how much you understand all things pertaining to life and godliness. One final thing to establish before we go on to the growth of knowledge is this. This spiritual knowledge is absolute and it is consistent. It's something you can take to the bank. You can base It's the only sure thing to base your life choices off of. Now let's begin reading here in 2 Peter again. Chapter 1, verse 5 through 11. And thinking about the growth of knowledge. Think about how knowledge will grow in our life. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance. And to temperance, patience, and to patience, 
godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they shall make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged through his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Stop reading there. Verse 5, it says, and beside this. So that means there's more. Coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is important, but that's not all there is to it. Becoming a partaker in the divine nature that it talks about is important, but that's not all there is to it. Growing in the knowledge of God is work. And in order to grow spiritually or grow in the knowledge of God, a Christian needs to apply himself or herself. It is work. I've heard it said that spiritual growth comes only through a process of learning to love righteousness. Growth comes through a process of learning to love righteousness. Philippians 2 says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you. Did you catch those phrases about work and applying yourself? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then verse 13 says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's work. Peter goes on to list seven characteristics of a godly life. But don't look at these characteristics like if you hold a string and add beads to the string, like I've got this one, then you add another one, got that one, got that one, got that one, until it's all the way up to the top. That's not the way to look at this. The word add, it says an add to where are we here? <clears throat> and add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. It's adding to these. It doesn't mean like beads on a string. As we develop one quality, we exercise another quality. And as we develop that one, we're exercising another one. Each one of these helps us to develop the next one, which leads to the next, which leads to the next. At the beginning of this list, I look over into the Amplified Bible quite a bit when I study just for a commentary. In the Amplified Bible it says this, employ every effort in exercising your faith to develop virtue. That's the first one. It says, and add to your faith virtue. So he says, employ every effort in exercising your faith to develop virtue. We don't need to go through this list, I don't think, this morning and define every one of these. It probably wouldn't hurt. But I don't think we'll take the time to do that. But I wonder, is it significant that virtue is at the top of the list? I wasn't even exactly sure what virtue was. What is virtue and is it significant that it's at the top of the list? Virtue means 
excellence, resolution, or this phrase has been going around this morning, Christian energy. Excellence, resolution, or Christian energy. That's what virtue is. So I think it is significant that it's at the top of the list. As we grow in these qualities that are listed here, these seven qualities, it needs to be done in an excellent way. We need to be resolved to do it. And we need Christian energy to do it. It's work to apply ourselves to these things. So it's important that we have virtue. I think that's why Peter tells us two times, once in verse 5 and once in verse 10, to give all diligence. Give diligence to do this. He says it takes work. It's not going to come easy. Give all diligence and use your Christian energy. And add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. There's that word again. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. These seven things cannot be manufactured. When they are displayed in the life of a Christian... They can only result from that divine nature that he talked about earlier in verse 4. It can only be a result of that divine nature. This will help you in your search for God, in in your search for the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his character. For if these things be in you and abound, not just in you, but and abound, they shall make you that they shall make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. So really these seven qualities could serve as a check check list for us to see if we are growing. It says if these are in you and they're abounding, you won't be barren or unfruitful. So here's a checklist for you. But if you're not clear if you're growing after looking at this checklist, you want to know if you're growing, take a look at this list of seven things. If you're still not clear, there's a list of three things in verse 8 and 9 that you can look at that may clear it up for you. But that would be in the negative. Someone who is not growing, it says, will be barren. I looked up what barren meant. I thought of a desert right away. To be barren means to be lazy or idle. A life that is dry. Here's a description of a barren life. A life that is dry, lacking all motivation for good things. Someone who would rather take the easy road than put forth any effort for spiritual fulfillment. Someone who is barren was not willing to put forth any effort to further the kingdom of Christ. Someone who is barren is someone who is dry and shallow spiritually. Someone who is easily offended. Someone who is doing many things to cover up an obvious lack of spiritual depth. That's someone who's barren. 
Someone who is not growing spiritually, here's number two on the negative checklist. It says they'll be unfruitful. Closely related to barren, I would say. Someone who is unfruitful, their laziness or idleness had led to a meager knowledge of God. And an unwillingness to apply anything the Holy Spirit brings to their mind. And in verse 9 is the third thing. Someone who is not growing is blind. Lacking spiritual insight and lacking spiritual foresight. Verse 10. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, instead of these things, give diligence. In verse 5 he says, and beside this, giving all diligence. Give diligence. Give all diligence. I wonder what Peter was thinking as he said this, to give diligence. It seems important to him here. Two times he mentions to give, be diligent, pay attention to this. What was he thinking? I wonder if he was thinking back. He knew firsthand how easily it is to get sidetracked under pressure. How easily it it is to deny Jesus. How prone we are to that. I think he's maybe thinking about that and he's saying, give all diligence. Don't let that happen. It's going to be work. It's hard work. But remember your knowledge of God. Grow in that knowledge of God. Be diligent. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure, it says. And if you do these things, verse 10, you will not fall. If we are diligent to grow in our knowledge of God, verse 11 says that an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into into the everlasting kingdom. And now look at all the titles he gives Jesus. It says, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's Lordship, he's our Savior, and he's our King. The door to eternity with God will be swung wide open abundantly if we can do this, if we can be diligent to make our calling and election sure. Now thirdly, I'd like to look at the grounds or the basis of this knowledge. Verse 12, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, Though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye be, that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came from such a voice from him, from the excellent glory, that is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard, then were we with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well, that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn 
and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Looking at the grounding or the basis of this knowledge, where do we get it? How do we know what it is? In verse 12 through 15, Peter's telling them, he's saying, I know you know this. I know you know all of this already. But as long as there's a breath left in my body, I am going to keep reminding you. You have to keep remembering this is what he's saying. I know you know it, but you've got to remember it. The basis for this knowledge is not this, was not from some, he says, cunningly devised fables. It's not something people made up. And then Peter goes on to say what the basis for him is. He says, I actually saw Jesus. I walked with him. I learned from him. I lived with him. I said, he said, I was an eyewitness of his majesty. I was with him on the holy mount. I heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's how I know that this knowledge of God is real. That's the basis that he had. And then he says, and furthermore, he said, there are prophecies relating to this. The prophecies have come true. It's like a light shining in darkness. For Peter, his basis for remembering and for the knowledge of God was from personal experience. But the people he's writing to, including us, we have experienced Jesus, the Holy Spirit, in our life, but physically, we have not physically experienced him as Peter had. And because of this, I think Peter makes a case for reminding us over and over. He says, as long as I'm with you, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep reminding you. I'm going to remind you of my personal testimony. I'm going to remind you of the prophecies that have been fulfilled and the credibility of these prophecies. But that doesn't help us. Where do we find the basis for this knowledge of God? This active participation in the truth Where do we find it? I believe the basis for our spiritual knowledge comes from this living, powerful Word of God right here. We know this Word is true because it has changed lives and I believe there's no greater testimony than a changed, a transformed life. Anyone can change their behavior, but it's miserable. A transformed life is a life that is flowing with the desire for the knowledge of God. I believe the biggest problem that we have is not the need for more knowledge, but the need to act on the knowledge that we have. We don't need to know. The greatest need isn't to know more things, but to act on what we do know. And there are many things that keep us from acting on the knowledge of God. And most of them revolve around the fear of man and our own stubbornness. And when I say the fear of man, I don't mean the fear of unbelievers. I think the problem is the fear of each other right here in this building. That's what keeps us from acting on the knowledge of God, what we know.
Because we've kind of come to the place where we know what's acceptable and what's expected. And if God touches an area in our life, something that he wants changed, wants us to do differently, young people, what are your peers going to think? You've flipped off the deep end somewhere. I think our own stubbornness plays into this as well. What if God touches something in your life and says, I want you to change this? What you are doing is not the way you're responding, the way you're spending your time here, the way you respond here. And God reaches down and he touches something. That touching in your life is the knowledge of God touching your heart, touching your life. So now you know it. You've got the knowledge of God. But the knowledge of God is actively participating in the truth or doing something about it. And it's probably not going to be a life-changing huge thing right now. But when there's a series of little things that God touches your life and touches your heart and wants you to change, it will be life-changing. It'll change your lifestyle. So it's up to us, I guess. We've got the knowledge of God. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness right here. Everything we need for life and godliness. It's up to us. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that knowledge of God? The knowledge of God is gained on God's terms alone. I think, I like to look at it this way, that God opens doors so that we can gain knowledge of Him and His character through the Word of God, through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, either through conviction or or God touching an area in your life. I think God brings us to the knowledge of Himself through the accountability and the encouragement of the brotherhood. But when we resist God working in our life, I don't believe that God just says, all right, and he opens another door for a way around that one. I think as we resist God touching that area in our life, we are stuck right there. There's no going around it until we're willing to deal with whatever he's touching in our life. God won't just say, okay, he, she is not ready for that now. We'll come back to that one. He knows when you're ready. He's given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. It's our fear of man or our stubbornness or whatever it is getting in our way, keeping us from applying that and becoming an active participant in the truth. I'd like to close with this verse from Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 10. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If you're able to, would you kneel for prayer?
Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it is never changing. We thank you that it is the source, an inexhaustible source of knowledge, of spiritual knowledge of your character, of your will. Pray that you will give us the diligence that we need to apply the knowledge of you and of your word in our life. And if there's something somewhere where you are touching somebody's life or their heart, I pray that you will give them the clearness to make the decision to walk in the knowledge of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.